Welcome to Financial Decoder, a new show about how cognitive and emotional biases can have a big impact on your financial life. This is a companion to Schwab's Choiceology podcast, where we look at how the decisions we make impact our lives in general and the psychological forces that drive those decisions. In this podcast, we'll decode the biases that influence specific financial decisions we all face. And we'll also examine strategies designed to help us improve our decision-making. My name is Mark Reapy, and I'll be your host. As head of the Schwab Center for Financial Research, I have an up-close view of how biases impact the decisions of individual investors, and I continue to be intrigued by the power these hidden forces have over us. To set the stage for today's episode, I'd like to ask you to think about a simple task you probably do every month, looking at your brokerage statement and scanning the list of stocks you own. As you consider each one, you're faced with a decision. Does it make sense to continue to hold this particular stock or should it be sold? This decision generates some angst and lots of questions. And that's a good thing because each decision matters. Successful investors know what to sell is just as important as what to buy. But that decision of what to sell can lead to one of the most widely documented mistakes that investors make. In fact, it's so common that it even has a name, the disposition effect. We're going to explore what the disposition effect is and the biases that cause investors to make such a common mistake. The disposition effect is the tendency to sell your winners, stocks that have increased in value since you bought them, while holding on to your losers, those that have dropped in price. An estimated 80% of individual investors in the U.S. who trade individual stocks exhibit this behavior, but Americans aren't the only ones. Everywhere this behavior has been studied, the disposition effect has been observed. This means individual equity investors in Australia, China, Finland, France, Israel, Portugal, Sweden, Taiwan, and the UK, they all exhibit the same behavior. Multiple biases contribute to this mistake, but I'm going to focus on the two that I find most compelling, loss aversion and mental accounting. Let's start with loss aversion. If you're like most people, a $1,000 loss hurts about twice as much as the positive feeling experienced from a $1,000 gain. This means you're reluctant to turn an unrealized loss on a stock investment, also known as a paper loss, into a realized loss by selling it. Selling magnifies the pain because realizing a loss is tantamount to admitting that you made a mistake. As long as the loss is only on paper, you can take comfort from hoping that the stock will bounce back. That hope vanishes once the loss is realized. The second bias, mental accounting, comes into play when, in your own mind, you create a separate little account for each and every position you own. In effect, you compute the profits and losses on a position-by-position basis and don't pay attention to the fact that each of these positions is part of a broader portfolio. The reason this can lead to an investing mistake is that you want your investing capital to be invested in the best opportunities. Mental accounting can, in fact, blind you to the bigger picture. The ultimate goal for most investors is to make sure their portfolio is generating the best return after taking into account an acceptable level of risk. If investors are too focused on individual positions, they lose sight of the fact that each dollar tied up in a poor stock means they miss out on an opportunity to put their money to work in a better stock. So if we put these distinct biases together, what's the impact in the real world? One study looking at real brokerage accounts of individual investors 
found that stocks with an unrealized gain were 50% more likely to be sold than stocks with an unrealized loss. Now that little factoid by itself doesn't prove anything because the motivation for selling could have been that the prospects for the stocks sold were worse than the prospects for the ones not sold. But the study went further and looked at the performance of the stocks after they were sold compared to the performance of the stocks that weren't sold. And guess what happened? On average over the following 12 months, the stocks that were sold, the winners in the portfolio, outperformed the stocks that were held, the losers, by 3.4%. This study highlights one of the costs of the disposition effect. If your capital isn't deployed efficiently, you may miss out on better opportunities. Investors in this example would have been better off holding on to the stocks they sold and selling the stocks they kept, the reverse of what they actually did. This mistake is costly in another way. If your stocks are held in a taxable account, a reluctance to sell losing positions means you miss an opportunity to realize a loss and use that loss as a potential write-off to offset realized gains in the rest of your portfolio or other earned income. The disposition effect has been found to exist among professional as well as individual investors, but empirical studies show that professionals are less susceptible to it. And joining me now is a professional investor who is keenly aware of these biases and the havoc they can inflict on a portfolio. Omar Aguilar is the Chief Investment Officer for Equities at Charles Schwab Investment Management, CSIM for short. So Omar, how do professional portfolio managers approach the sell decision and what techniques are they employing that our listeners can employ when making their own sell decisions? Thank you, Mark. And, uh, you know, at, at CISIM, we have a lot of experience in dealing with behavioral anomalies. Behavioral finance is something that we experience on a daily basis. Even as professional money managers, uh, portfolio managers, traders, analysts, they always deal with the same kind of you know, decisions that most people have. Uh, most of the biases that we feel with our portfolio managers and analysts and traders are the same biases that most people have. And uh, that's because we're human. <laughs> we all have exactly the same, you know, wired in a similar way, and therefore we are subject to the same human biases. So how do we deal with that? The way that we have dealt with that is by creating a framework that allows us to have a discipline so that we can mitigate most of the biases. Uh, let me be clear. Those biases are things that are not going to go away. They're part of us being human. The only thing we can do is try and find a way to try to mitigate those through a process that is disciplined. Now, the framework that we have created includes three steps. The first step is to establish clear investment objectives. The second step is trying to evaluate and assess what kind of risk we're willing to take. And the last one is to try to find a process that allows us to implement those decisions on those objectives in a disciplined way. And I really want to emphasize the word discipline because that's probably the best way that I can suggest we in the professional management allows to mitigate most of our biases. So you're approaching this, I think, a little bit different than most individuals because you're recognizing the biases right away. And when you set up your investment process, you're putting in place a structure to mitigate those biases. 
That is correct. So we, we tried to set up a framework that allow us, because we're dealing obviously with the assets that represent a lot of people, we're trying to you know, understand how we can actually make sure that this is the most objective way for us to invest money in the market. So we obviously start by looking at the investment objective. What is this investment supposed to do? Is this investment objective something that we want to have for the long run? Is this something that is going to be for the short run? What kind of things we need to do to make sure that we mitigate upfront all those biases that we know we're going to face? So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the investment objective process. What constitutes, uh, in your mind, a clear investment objective? Well, a clear investment objective is to start with the purpose of what we think this is going to be doing for the investor. On number one, you know, what we try to do is looking at the time horizon, looking at for how long are we trying to actually put this investment to work. And in many cases, the biggest component to this is how much risk are we willing to take to achieve those objectives? Typical investment objectives is we want to grow capital. Typical investment objectives include we want to you know, generate income. Some of those you know, could be a combination, try to growth capital and at the same time generate income. In many other cases, it could also be very defensive, could actually be just to try to stay the course. Uh, so a lot of the investment objectives need to be clearly defined for the time horizon that we're willing to have and at the same time trying to analyze the level of risk that we're willing to take to achieve those objectives. So uh, I think it sounds like compared to most indiv individuals, you have a much clearer uh, identification process up front as to what the objectives are and how you're going to be achieving those. Correct. Um, let's talk a little bit about then uh, risk assessment and, uh, and budgeting. Uh, so how do you... Uh, how do you assess risk? How do you come up with your list of risks that you're worried about? And that's actually a, a, the, the perfect question, Mark, because in many cases, you know, there is a lot of discussion in the market and there's a lot of literature about risk and uh, risk assessment and risk tolerance. And there's a lot of people with questionnaires and trying to figure out what it is risk means. Uh, for us in the professional money management is trying to understand what could go wrong. In many cases, this happens in everybody's life. You're trying to do something, no matter what it is. And at the end of the day, you're always thinking, what could go wrong? You know, as simple as you buy a ticket to a plane. Well, you want to make sure you don't miss the plane. You want to make sure you get to the airport on time. You want to make sure that you get to the gate when you need to be. You don't want to miss the plane. You're already trying to achieve a goal. Investment is the same piece. You try to understand upfront what could go wrong and what you're willing to take. There are certain people that really want to make it very close. They are willing to go very close just by the time that the gates are about to close, and they're okay with that. There are other people that actually want to get there four hours in advance just because they really don't want to take any risk. So for us, that's what we call the sleeping point. What that means is that is the point where you're very comfortable knowing that you can sleep well at night. So if you don't want to miss your flight, then you put your clock a little earlier. You want to make sure that you sleep well, knowing that you're going to wake up on time so that you can get to the airport at the right time. If you are comfortable taking a little closer, well, maybe you put the clock a little bit more so that you can sleep more. That is really trying to understand how you can actually achieve those objectives. At the end of the day, what you don't want to do is you don't want to miss your fight. So in essence, in your process, you've listed out all the different risks, everything that could go wrong with the, uh, with the portfolio and you've made a conscious decision to decide which of these I'm comfortable with, 
which of these things I'm not comfortable with, and then you're adjusting your process accordingly. Exactly. You know, the big component to that is trying to understand how much are you willing to take in each one of the sources of risks. So let's talk about a little bit about implementation and evaluation. What are you trying to accomplish with the uh, kind of the disciplined process to approach this? Because I think when you're listing through your three main points, you really emphasize discipline. So why is that so important? Discipline is the most important piece when it comes down to implementation. You know, regardless of, you know, what the investment objective is, you know, uh, over, you know, many years of doing professional money management, what we have observed is that human biases usually tend to um, come out at times of stress. You know, when the market is going up too high, when the market is actually crashing down, in many of those circumstances, usually that's where human biases tend to come. If you're risk averse, you're usually not gonna like when the market goes down. If you really like to do, you know, herding and you tend to be a, a very biased towards your peers, you actually wanna get into the market probably at the wrong time. So a lot of those biases happen at the same time. So the, that same thing happens with traders. Traders actually tend to like to go and buy things when everybody's buying it because they think they can actually, they don't wanna lose, you know, track of, you know, being in the same place. So what we have uh, developed is that creating a discipline process that allows you to continue to follow a routine so that you continue to execute the plan regardless of what happens in the market or with the volatility allows you to prevent you from your own biases. In many cases, if you have a plan, you talk to an advisor, you talk to, you know, to, your, to yourself about you know, things that you're going to do when things are starting to get a little bit risky, then you continue to execute the process in a disciplined way that in the long run allows you to you know, meet your objectives as you had planned. So in essence, you've created a, a situation where you have, uh, in essence, a contingency plan for everything that could happen. And then you have an approach you've decided ahead of time with your team about how you're going to handle that. So uh, the, the idea of a spurious or emotional decision, that's not really part of the equation anymore because all that's been kind of thought out ahead of time. Precisely. That's the big component of trying to stay uh, out of the biases of everybody and keep it objective. Well, Omar, I got to tell you, it's actually enjoyable to hear that professionals have to grapple with these same issues just like individuals have to. Thanks for coming by today. Thank you. The goal of this podcast is to help improve your decision-making. The good news is that you're already on the right track by becoming aware of these biases since you can't fix what you don't even know is broken. But awareness isn't enough. So in addition to the decision-making framework that we heard about that professionals use, I have three other suggestions. The first is to start fresh. Forget what's already happened with each of your stocks and approach each one as if you're looking at it for the first time. Think about its future prospects and the level of risk associated with it. How does that risk-reward trade-off compare to the other stocks that you don't own? What are the taxes associated with selling? If the risk-reward trade-off isn't attractive after you take into account any tax-related costs, then selling makes sense. There's evidence that the fresh start approach works. One study found that when stocks are inherited, the disposition effect is half as large as it is when stocks are purchased by the investor. Think about that. Investors are reluctant to sell at a loss when they made the call to buy it in the first place because they've got emotional skin in the game. When they inherit a stock, they're more willing to cut the cord on a losing position because they're approaching it with fresh eyes and have little or no emotional connection. 
My second suggestion is to think about your next trade. Remember the earlier point about mental accounting? You probably think about your gains or losses on a stock-by-stock -stock basis. For example, I bought stock X at $100 per share, and I open a mental account just for that stock. If the current price is $90 per share, that's a loss. I don't like that, and I don't sell to avoid recognizing the loss. But what if you broaden your mental account and evaluate gains or losses, not on a trade-by-trade -trade basis, but for a series of transactions? For example, I could sell that stock that's down to 90 and immediately buy something else to replace it. By focusing my mental account on the original $100 investment, I'm able to move on from the sale in the middle where I took the loss and concentrate on how it's invested now. It turns out that this way of thinking helps. Data from real brokerage accounts show that investors who sell and immediately reinvest the money show no sign of the disposition effect. Not only that, but when investors sell and immediately reinvest, they have better performance. The third suggestion is to consider using stop-loss orders. A stop-loss order instructs your broker to automatically sell if the price falls to a certain point. For example, assume I buy a stock at $100 per share, I could place a stop-loss order at 90. That means if the stock falls to 90, it'll be sold at the market price. Now, there's no guarantee that you'll actually get that price, but you can see this as a commitment device to get out of a position that's heading in the wrong direction. It doesn't require you to make a decision when emotions might cloud your judgment. There's real-world evidence that this can work. A study of real brokerage accounts in the UK show that using stop-loss orders can reduce the size of the disposition effect. Those are the three tips, but I have one caveat. Don't walk away thinking that you need to sell a stock the minute it has a paper loss. But you should be aware that a massive amount of data indicates that a large majority of investors disproportionately sell their winners and not their losers. And they're behaving this way primarily because they don't like to admit they made a mistake. Recognizing a loss hurts, and the fear of that pain can cause you to lose sight of the big picture. So remember to give more consideration to the future prospects of your stocks and ignore whether they're up or down unless it's part of some tax reduction or risk-based strategy. And keep at it. As you gain experience, it gets easier to recognize your biases and adjust accordingly. One study using actual accounts found that the magnitude of the disposition effect for individual investors who had more experience was 75% smaller than it was for those who had less experience. So the next time you review your stock holdings, make sure to look at both the winners and the losers. And don't let biases stop you from doing what's best for your portfolio. If you'd like to learn more about these biases, I'd encourage you to listen to our sister podcast, Choiceology, where Katie Milkman shows how biases affect every sort of decision you might make in your life. You can find it at schwab.com podcast or wherever you get podcasts. And if you'd like more insights into trading strategies, you can get answers to your questions, market news, and commentary from Schwab's experts at schwab.com slash live daily. Thanks for listening. For more important disclosures, see the show notes in schwab.com slash financial decoder.